Good morning, you guys. Boy, it's nice and warm in here. It was a little chilly outside this morning, unless you're from Canada. Then it's warm for you, right? Hey, um, uh, with that, so uh, elementary kids, you guys are dismissed out the side, I think with Monsieur Ed this morning, and then uh, youth group, so junior and uh, senior high, you guys are out as well. Pastor Chris is teaching you this morning. And uh, again, like Pastor Chris said, uh, all of our midweek meetings are on pause this week for Thanksgiving. Uh, I know quite a few of us are already, quite a few of uh, the folks here in our church are already off on uh, Thanksgiving travel. So we wanna pray for them and just traveling mercies. Uh, and just pray for everybody, just a blessed time of Thanksgiving this week, uh, whether you're celebrating it with, uh, with family or friends or, uh, or whoever. Uh, just an opportunity, uh, again, as has been already said this morning, just to be thankful. We should be thankful every day, but this is just a neat opportunity to, uh, uh, to really focus in on that. So, um, so with that, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 2 today. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, maybe raise your hand, and hopefully we can get a Bible into your hands. You can use a Bible on your phone if you'd like. I'm teaching out of the New King James Version, if you want to follow along in that version, but any version that you have would be perfectly fine. So Mark chapter 2, and uh, let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless, uh, continue to bless our time and really bless his word uh, this morning. So Father, we thank you for today and we do thank you for this church family, Lord. We thank you for this place that you have provided, Lord, and this, um, this opportunity that you have set aside each week just for us to come together corporately, Lord, and just to share the things that have gone on uh, for each of us in our week, Lord, just as a chance to sit quietly at your feet and have you settle our hearts, Lord, in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, uh, and just to really focus on you, Lord, focus on those things that you want to communicate to us. And so we pray that this morning, Lord, as we go to your word, that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would just give us ears to hear what he would say to each of us, Lord, personally individually, Lord, and also just as your church corporately. And so we thank you, Lord, pray your blessings on this time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So continuing, of course, right through our study of the book of Mark, and we are finally this morning going to finish up uh, chapter 2. And we're going to finish up chapter 2 with two more of these encounters where we're seeing Jesus come into kind of this early conflict with the religious Jewish leaders of the day. And we remember, you know, as his popularity now is really starting to increase, as his ministry there in the Galilee is really taking off, it was really drawing the attention of all of those religious leaders from down at Jerusalem. There was this news of all these miracles that Jesus was performing, and of course this message that he was proclaiming about this kingdom of God that was at hand. And we, we know there were now these cleansed lepers that were starting to show up down there at the temple, showing themselves to the priests, asking for these offerings to be made on their behalf. We've said that those were offerings that were never ever made before by the priests in Israel because no one had ever been cleansed of leprosy before. And so remember, as we started out in chapter 2, that some of these religious leaders, right, the scribes and the Pharisees, they make their way all the way from Jerusalem up 
into the Galilee because they wanted to see what was really going on with this Rabbi Jesus, right? What is all of the fuss about? And we've seen in chapter 2 that they found out, right? They found out firsthand, first with that wonderful episode, the healing of the paralytic man let down there through the roof by his faithful friends during that meeting there at Peter's house. Then there was the calling of the, the traitorous tax collector Levi, who we know better as Matthew. And then right after that, that meal that Matthew hosted there in his home with all of his tax collector and sinner friends. And in each of these situations, what I think Jesus has made it clear is that he was here to do something that was entirely new. Right now, as we continue on now in the rest of chapter 2, what we're going to see is kind of the final two conflicts in this collection of conflicts here in this very first chapter that Jesus had with these religious leaders. And each of them, I think, really demonstrate for us, really declared to them at that time that the gospel that Jesus was bringing with him was an absolutely, it brought an absolutely new economy, it brought an absolutely new covenant, right? And that this new covenant was going to bring some new and some wonderful blessings to all of us as believers. So the, the title of the message today, if you will, is Wonderful New Gospel Blessings. Now, I know this is going to be kind of clunky, and I don't want to go back and reteach the two passages from the first half of the chapter, and Lord knows you guys don't want me to do that either. But what I do want to do is just kind of loop back and kind of loop them in as a group of these gospel blessings. Because what I, what I mean is in the, in the healing of the paralytic man, what we see is that the gospel extends mercy. Right? We saw Jesus extending this forgiveness of sins, right? addressing the deepest need, the deeper need of this man and of sinners who are estranged from God. And then in the encounter with the calling of Matthew, what we see is that even beyond that, the gospel embodies grace. Right? We saw Jesus extend even this same forgiveness of sins to the unforgivable. Right? He extends this forgiveness of sins to the worst of the worst of lost sinners. Those who were considered to be you know, in rebellion against God. And we talked about a little bit the fact that in a beautiful way that Matthew himself is a wonderful kind of a living illustration of the gospel. And I think that in, in looking at Jesus here, even in just these first early interactions with the hurting and the needy and the sick and the lost, what we really begin to see, and I think Mark does such a wonderful job with this, but we really see the gospel being worked out and lived out through the life of Jesus, right? The people aren't just hearing the gospel, but they're seeing what the gospel looks like, right? We're seeing what God had always intended through the gospel. And it, we're seeing it as Jesus comes doing something entirely new, which is interesting because he's actually only doing the very thing that God had said for centuries that he would do. 
right? And now here Jesus is proclaiming this gospel and living it out. He's extending mercy. He's embodying grace. And so now as we go on, picking up now in verse 18, we're going to see yet another one, I think, of these beautiful gospel blessings that Jesus came to provide to each one of us. And the background of this blessing is going to come out of some very new insights that Jesus is going to share to the age-old question for the Jews about religious fasting. So look in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, where Mark writes that the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now remember where we've just been, because presumably this may be tied together with what just happened in the last section. Remember, as Jesus and his disciples had just finished up having that wonderful feast there at the house of Matthew. And so the question that these, these disciples of the Pharisees and of John were asking, you know, may have been more, you know, why are you guys feasting while we're all fasting? And we're going to see why they may have said that. Now, the, the issue of fasting was a big one because the Pharisees had made it a big one. Fasting, of course, is, is simply, you know, a time when we would choose to deprive our body of some fleshly thing, typically food, right? But we do it in order to take our eyes off of the things of the world so that we can focus them more completely on God. Now, as you look at fasting, what you see is the only fast that God ever actually required of the Jews was for one day on the annual Day of Atonement, right? The Day of Atonement, the most solemn, holy day in all of the Israelite feasts and festivals. This was this day of these elaborate rituals and these annual sacrifices that were offered up for the sins of the nation. And on that day, this is what it says in Leviticus 29, it says that this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, that's the Day of Atonement. It says, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Now that phrase, afflict your souls, in our translation, can also be humble yourselves or deny yourselves or practice self-denial. And it's always traditionally been understood, both by the Jews and, and Christian Bible students as well, to refer to fasting here specifically as an act of repentance and of mourning over the sins of the people. It was also understood by the Jews even to be the only fast day that was commanded in all of the law of Moses. But the Pharisees, what the Pharisees did is they had taken and developed this yearly fast into a weekly fast, actually a twice-weekly fast. So every Monday and every Thursday, they were required to fast, but not this time out of repentance or mourning, but simply as an act of their piety, right? Their holiness. It was a way that they could show that they were serious, right? They were super serious about being holy, right? They figured, look, if once a year is a good thing, then twice per week must be a really good thing, right? The Pharisees were famous for their fasting. 
And just as a side note, it's understandable that the disciples of John the Baptist would have taken this up as well. John the Baptist's Baptist ministry, of course, was all about stressing what? Repentance. And the thing that we need to remember about John the Baptist is that as great as John was, and certainly he is one of the great heroes of the Bible, but John the Baptist was not a New Testament saint. So John the Baptist really is kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so he looked at things very differently, and he looked at things from that kind of a perspective, really still dominated by that Old Testament way of looking at things, right? So now here for the Pharisees, a Pharisee fasted, like we said, two days a week, whether there was a reason to fast or not, right? That wasn't really the point, right, if there was a reason, because this was a ritual, this was a religious tradition, and in their minds, it didn't necessarily need to be based in any kind of a spiritual reality or a spiritual need. As we said, it simply became a way for them to show that they were more holy than everyone else. So really, at the root of this simple question is, hey, Jesus, look at what we're doing, right? Look how we're so serious about God, and why aren't your guys, you know, why, aren't, why are they off eating maybe even on a Monday or a Thursday, right, at this feast at Matthew's house? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 19. It says, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So essentially, Jesus says, look, fasting has a place, and it has a time, but it's not now, guys. Right, so don't get the, the sense here, Jesus is not against fasting at all. Jesus is for fasting, but fasting has a time and fasting has a place in the Christian life, and this wasn't it. Think about what was happening at this point. Here you have this incredible scene that Jesus is right in the middle of. I mean, we read you know, passage after passage where these multitudes of people are being saved and their lives are being touched by this gospel message. Any environment that Jesus goes into, these wonderful things are happening. And so he's basically turning to these guys and he's saying, what exactly is it that you want me to be mourning about right now? What exactly is it that you think I should be fasting over right now? You're not attending a funeral at this point in my ministry. You're attending a wedding. And to fast now, Jesus says, at this point would not be appropriate for the things that God is doing. And then it's almost like he goes on and he says, look, you know, you just don't fast while you're there at the wedding with the bridegroom." Right? That simply doesn't make any sense. And when Jesus very strategically kind of pulls in and uses this illustration or this analogy of a, of a wedding, this would have been something that would have really resonated with those religious leaders. Because according to their very own rabbinic writings, right, in the Talmud, it said that there is but one single time, the rabbi said, when a man is absolved of all religious duty, even prayer, and they said that that was at a wedding ceremony. I'm not sure where they got that. 
and yet that's what they had written. They said that the only duty a man had at a wedding ceremony was to rejoice. But of course, the Pharisees had completely lost their sense of time and their place, and they were trying to require this activity, right, a good activity, but make it a discipline instead of basing it in, in the time and the place and what was really happening in the spiritual reality. They wanted to make it this kind of a badge of spiritual, uh, spirituality that was disconnected from reality. And I think that in, you know, implied in what Jesus says here is, look, you've done that in your own life. Now, don't you dare try to do it to my disciples. And so Jesus makes this strong stand against it. And you know, he's saying, look, I'm not like the Pharisees. I'm not like John the Baptist. I am the Messiah, right? You are looking at the bridegroom of the people of God. And so wherever I am and whoever I am with, those people should have joy like they were at a wedding. Now, we know that the disciples of Jesus would fast. We know that they did fast. We know that we do fast even now today, right? After his death, now that he's no longer here with us, we fast now, you know, for special seasons, right? To try to seek his face, we're looking for direction or we're looking for some kind of a spiritual breakthrough. So his disciples do fast because now it's appropriate that we fast, but not simply for the sake of legalism and of appearances, which again is what drove most of what the Pharisees did. The, the Pharisees' version of serving God was this joyless, heavy, burdensome experience. That's what it was. And it was almost like they were saying, look, if you are going to serve God, you better know that it's going to be miserable, right? Talk about a selling point, right? Remember, this is what Jesus said of them regarding fasting. He said that when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Right? They disfigure their faces. They try to look sad. They try to look disheveled so that they look miserable so that everyone will know that they are doing this super holy thing. Now, the sad truth is that the Pharisees are still alive and well today. Right, And there are still so many people, even in the church, that this is kind of their presentation of what it is to serve God. And it simply looks like this joyless, heavy, burdensome kind of an experience. It looks like they're walking around always in a time of mourning. But Jesus is saying here that following him should be much more like being a part of a wedding party. Right? That's the distinction that Jesus is making. And what is a wedding party like? Well, if everything's going the way that it should be, right? It's a place where there's joy, lots of joy, because the gospel provides joy. And to be a Christian is to live a life that's marked by joy. Think about it. At a wedding, there's joy and there is hope because there's this expectation of these wonderful things that are to come. And that's the very same joy that the gospel infuses into our lives. And we need to remember that. 
We need to remember that the Christian life should be a life of joy. Now, do we experience times of sadness? Do we experience sorrow? Of course we do. And yet biblical joy, right, the joy that the gospel brings is so much deeper than those things because biblical joy, the Bible says, where does it come from? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5, we don't need to get that far into the verse before we learn that the fruit of the Spirit is love, what? Joy. The answers are right there on the board. Joy, right? It, so our joy comes from this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That joy is our natural reaction to the supernatural work that God has done in our lives and our hearts. And it's based on that reality that we've been changed and that we're different, that we know that our sins have been forgiven, that our entire eternal destiny has now been altered, that we've been translated right from that kingdom of darkness into that kingdom of light. And so this sort of a deep indwelling joy and a true commitment, that's the kind of stuff that whatever's happening to us in the world, it can't take that joy from us. That joy shouldn't change with the shifting of our circumstances, but instead it should undergird all of them, whatever's happening, because it's the result of what the gospel has done in us. So do we understand that, right? And, and I think sometimes we don't. And because we don't understand it or we don't remember it, because we don't experience it, because sometimes I think we don't even think that that's what is supposed to be happening to us. And sometimes not only are we miserable, but then in turn we kind of project that very same signal like the Pharisees, where we walk around saying, you know, if you want to follow and serve God, it's going to be pretty rough. It's going to be pretty miserable, but you know, that's just the way it is. And you just got to, you know, persevere. But to Jesus, it wasn't that way at all. To Jesus, the life of the gospel was the way of joy. So again, I think what he's telling them here is that what he's doing is totally different, right? This is a wedding. It's not a funeral. It's a time for rejoicing, and it's not a time for mourning. And he, he so wants to make this point to them that now he uses these two different examples to try to help them understand, I think, this real impact of what the gospel economy brings. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. So understand, this is the first time that Mark has included these two short parables of Jesus, right? As Jesus is trying to get through to these guys. But both of these parables have a much broader sense of scope than just answering this question of fasting. And the point kind of of both of them is that Jesus' presence here with his people was a time of newness and of freshness. Right? It was a time that signaled kind of the passing away of the old and not the repairing of it. 
right? Understand the Mosaic economy, right? All of this, the, the law of Moses, it was decaying, it was getting old, and it was about to vanish away. And Jesus came to establish something entirely new, right? This new covenant in his blood. If you read the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 8, the writer is talking all about the coming of this new covenant as the replacement of the old one. And he tells us this. He says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now what that means is, again, Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. That's what our salvation is all about, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a what kind of creation? A new creation, not a patched up creation. I'm not interested in being a patched up creation. I want to be a new creation. Again, because that new patch won't stick on a shrunk garment and that new wine is just going to blow up those old wineskins. So there's kind of this danger involved in trying to put something new into something old. The, the cloth, we all understand that. But the wineskin thing, a wineskin would expand, right, under the pressure of the gases as the juice fermented. So if this new unfermented wine was put in an already expanded old kind of a brittle wineskin, it was sure to blow up and you would have a big mess. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were making of what Jesus was doing. They were making a big mess. And he's telling them through these parables, he says, look, you're trying to impose your Old Testament, that the old covenant, on this new covenant, this new thing that I'm doing, this new thing that I am here birthing into existence. Now, yes, of course, there's an absolutely beautiful connection in what Jesus is doing here in, in all of those types and those shadows of the past. And yet what he's doing here and now through the gospel is beyond all of that. Right? We know that he came in fulfillment of all of those prophecies and all of those promises. He said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And what Jesus was doing is he was bringing the law and the prophets, right? Everything that the Jews already understood, Jesus was now bringing all of that to its wonderful end point of maturity. And I think one of the best examples that people often use is that idea that, you know, of a single little acorn that then grows into a huge, beautiful oak tree, right? And in that sense, that single acorn is gone, and yet its ultimate and wonderful purpose has now been fulfilled now in its true greatness. And yet these guys simply couldn't see it. It's like they stood there and they stared at Jesus and they couldn't see this beautiful oak tree that was standing right there in front of them. They had so distorted and misunderstood the entire message. They had all these little tiny acorns and they had imposed all of that on the public. And Jesus comes and says, no, this is something entirely new. God is doing something new here. It's no longer about the acorns. It's now about the oak tree. And he says, don't you dare try to add your legalism to my new covenant because legalism 
always ruins everything, right? And when you watch the life of Jesus, we see in the Gospels just how much and how often he stood so strongly against religious legalism. Just to try, and think about the writings of the Apostle Paul, right? Just to try to make sure that legalism didn't even gain the slightest foothold into the Christian faith. And that's what Jesus is doing here, right? Fasting is a good thing, but don't take a good thing and do it out of a bad motivation and then try to say that it's now the standard for spirituality, right? Jesus says, look, I didn't come to give you this patched up robe of righteousness. I came to give you a brand new one. And here's the reality when you think about legalism. Christianity cannot be improved. Christianity cannot be improved in any way from what it already is and the way that Jesus wants it to be. It can't be improved from what he died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day to produce. It cannot be improved in any way by these man-made requirements of religion that we try to attach to it. Whatever that might be in your experience, whatever religious system you may have been a part of, right? And all legalism or religious tradition all these rules and regulations ever do to Christianity is they just mar this brand new beautiful thing that Jesus died to bring into the human condition. This thing that Jesus came to earth and lived his life and, and died and was buried and resurrected, right? He did this to birth something new and we just mess it up when we try to add on to it. And here's the problem is that legalism is always kind of portrayed uh, by people. They say, you know what, if you're really serious about God, then this is what you need to do, right? Or these are all the different things that you need to do. You need to say this many prayers or these many of this. I'm not going to say it because I don't. Anyway, you guys know where I'm going with that. Right? God bless you. The, and the people that are usually the most vulnerable to all of this religious legalism, they're the sincere people who really are serious about God, and they're looking for some way, even beyond the scriptures, to prove it. So in a sense, we can all be vulnerable to it, and Jesus makes this clear and righteous stand against it because legalism always brings a burden, but the gospel is what produces joy in our lives. Can I tell you this morning, you don't need to work harder, you don't need to try harder to get God to love you and accept you because he already does and he already did. Amen? Amen. Paul says this, that the, to the praise of the glory of his grace, he has made us, what? Accepted in the beloved. That's the gospel. That's the joy that it brings. And it's because of the mercy and it's because of the grace of God. So now we move to this last section, Mark's final section of this chapter. We're going to see yet another one of these gospel blessings. It's this last kind of confrontation in this chapter, at least, between Jesus and these religious leaders who were now, at this point, we're going to see, they are watching anything and they are watching everything that Jesus did, just hoping that they could get something on him that they could use to discredit him before the people and then later to accuse him 
before the authorities. And these guys were so determined. Look what we read next in verse 23 and 24. It says, now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, before we get into what this means, here's just a question, right? Because inquiring minds want to know, right? How in the world would these guys know what Jesus and his disciples were doing as they walked through a grain field on the Sabbath unless these guys were also out there, right, following after them and spying on them out in the grain fields on the Sabbath? One thing we've got to give these guys is they were determined, if nothing else. So now what they've done is they've gone from their last challenge of him about the fasting, now they're going to challenge him about the Sabbath and the fact that they believe his disciples have broken it. So we've gone now from the opening act now to the headliner. Because, trust me, if you wanted a clear example of a simple commandment that the Jewish scribes and Pharisees had overcomplicated, it was the command to observe the Sabbath, even way more even than we just saw about fasting. Again, the Sabbath we know was, was given to his people by the Lord back in Exodus 20, just after they came out of Egypt. It was a very special sign between Jehovah and Israel. It was cherished still to the, by the Jews as a sacred thing. It was a day, right, Saturday, each and every week, and it was a day that was to be set aside to rest and reflect on God's goodness and God's provision. And it was so important that it was part of their law. Right? We know that the law of Moses prohibited work on the Sabbath, but Moses didn't really give too many specifics much beyond that. The actual commandment regarding the Sabbath is pretty simple. In Exodus 20, in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do no work. So, it was to be a holy day, and it was to be a restful day. But that's really all the instruction that the law gives us. Now, beyond that... In Exodus 35, we note that it's, you're not supposed to kindle a fire for cooking. Numbers 15 makes it crystal clear that you can't gather fuel for a fire on the Sabbath. Jeremiah chapter 17 says you shouldn't carry a burden on the Sabbath. And in Nehemiah, we learn that you shouldn't be conducting business on the Sabbath. But then the rabbis, they filled Judaism with all of these other elaborate rituals related to the Sabbath and how you were to observe that day. In fact, they took that one commandment about the Sabbath and they wrote 40 full chapters in their rabbinical writings on the technicalities of how to observe the Sabbath. Now, to their credit, they had a zeal for the word of God, but it was a misguided zeal. And they kind of figured, okay, if God says we should do A then, you know, to do AA or, or to do triple A would be even better, 
right? So they took this heart behind this very simple demand of the law of Moses, and they went way beyond what God ever intended. Here's just an example of what the ancient rabbis taught that you should do on that Sabbath day. A man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand across his chest or on his shoulders, but you could carry something with the back of your hand, with your foot, with your elbow, or in your ear, your hair, or the hem of your shirt, or your shoe or your sandal. Also on the Sabbath, you were forbidden to tie a knot, except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, you could not tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie her girdle to the bucket and pull the, right? This is what Jesus is dealing with here, right? And here's the real irony on this whole issue that the Pharisees, this accusation that they're making against Jesus' disciples as they're just plucking off these heads of grain, walking through the field, you know, they're rubbing together to get rid of the chaff so that they could eat the insides of the wheat like a snack, right? These guys were probably hungry, there was no in and out or maybe the drive through line was too long or it could have been Sunday and Chick-fil-A, of course, would be closed, right? But here's the irony. The irony is that what they were doing was not, not only, not specifically prohibited in the law of the Sabbath, but it was specifically allowed in the law to be done on any day. Okay, here's what Deuteronomy 23 specifically says. It says that when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So it was okay, and it was always okay, to just grab some grain as you passed through if you were hungry, you just couldn't take out a sickle and harvest the grain because it wasn't yours, right? We call that stealing, right? So that wasn't allowed. But here's this specific provision in God's word to provide for exactly what it was the disciples were doing. But again, it didn't matter what the Bible actually said, right? Don't bother me with the facts, right? Because in the eyes of the Pharisees, According to their rules and their regulations, these disciples of Jesus had actually fully violated four different traditions. Four different traditions that they had come up with related to the Sabbath. Because in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples were guilty of reaping, of threshing, of winnowing, and of preparing food. Now what's really interesting, as you watch Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus never, ever violated God's command to observe the Sabbath. Jesus never violated any commandment, for that matter. He certainly never approved of his disciples uh, violating God's command to observe the Sabbath. But what we do see that Jesus did do, and he did it often, was he would often break the religious leaders' additions right, to God's command about the Sabbath law. And it almost seems like he sometimes seemed to deliberately break them right, in order so that he could try to help these men see that all of their religious legalism was simply wrong. And in this case, to do that, 
watch next, he's just going to take them right to their own scriptures, right? He's going to take them right to a passage that they should have been very, very familiar with. In verse 25, it says, but he said to them, so to the Pharisees, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and those with him? Now remember, Jesus is saying this to these men who claimed to be the experts in the Old Testament, right? And he starts out with, have you never read? Imagine how that must have fried these guys, right? But now he takes them to this very familiar episode in the life of King David, right? It's plucked right from the pages of 1 Samuel 21. You guys see what I did there? Plucked from the pages, right? We're like we're in a grain field or wheat. It's a whole motif that I'm working on here. Verse 25 says, but he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. Now, some of you Bible students, no doubt, you know this story. It was during one of those very difficult periods in David's life, this one when he was actually fleeing from King Saul because King Saul was trying to kill him. So that would qualify as a difficult period, I think, in anyone's life. In this case, David had fled from Jerusalem with some men who were loyal to him, and they all ended up in this nearby city called Nob. And Nob was a priestly city. It was right in the territory of Benjamin, and it was where the tabernacle was currently set up. So to make a long story shorter, <laughs> David and his men, they were allowed to eat this old showbread, which had just been taken out of the tabernacle and replaced by these brand new loaves for the coming week. Now, the, the bread typically was the old bread was supposed to be set aside to be eaten by the priests, but it was given by those same priests to David and his starving men. Now, we will say, this is an instance where David did break God's law. Right? Jesus says as much, right? That it was not lawful for him to eat. So he did break God's law by eating this bread. At least he broke the letter of the law. Now what David didn't do is he and his men didn't charge into the tabernacle and grab the fresh bread. Right? They were eating the old bread that was supposed to be given to the priests. But, but what's interesting is even in this, nowhere in the scriptures do we see that God held this against David. And when God was upset with David, he let David know about it, right? But in this case, there was nothing that was ever said as though God understood and God had mercy on David in this situation, right? Demonstrating that God, what God really wants is mercy before sacrifice, right? That love for others is more important even than religious rituals. It's just like David would later write in Psalm 51, he says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And I think that in bringing up this example of David, Jesus is very clearly revealing such an important principle, and that's that human need is always more important than religious ritual. And I loved the way that one author put it. He said, any application of the Sabbath law which operates to the detriment of man is out of harmony with God's purposes. 
And remember, Jesus' disciples hadn't even actually violated God's law. They'd only violated the Pharisees' traditions about God's law. And so Jesus brings this up and he says, hey guys, would you rather have seen David die of starvation, right, instead of becoming the greatest king in the history of Israel? He says, look, the, the, the Sabbath law was never intended to push hungry men further towards starvation, right? The Sabbath law was always intended to be a blessing and not a burden. In verse 27, it says that he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, verse 28, the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, look, you don't need to tell me what the Sabbath is for, right? I created the Sabbath, right? And I'm here now to tell you what it was designed to do. Because the Sabbath day, right, with this Saturday, this day of rest, it was intended to simply be exactly that, a day of rest, right? It was intended by God and it was a gift given by God to mankind. And boy, how we could use that right about now, right? I mean, we here in this country, we're like these workaholics, right? Working seven days a week or, or 60 plus hours a week, right? But the Sabbath day was intended to be a day off that was different than those other six days. And it was to be a day off where God had, had, had prescribed in his law that it be protected by the culture from putting any other pressure on it to make that day anything else except this is my day to draw closer to the Lord. This is my day to pursue the greatest thing that a person can possibly pursue in life and that is their relationship with God and to pursue that for one day of each week to be able to pursue that without the distractions of work and the demands of work. So the Sabbath law was actually a beautiful, beautiful law. But what the Pharisees had done, and specifically here, is that they had turned the Sabbath day with all of these extra things that they had added on. They had made the Sabbath day, right, this day that was supposed to be the day of rest, they had made it a greater burden on God's people than the other six days were. So that the Sabbath was far from being this blessing that God had intended for it to be. Now you've got everybody worrying, right? Because the religious leaders are wondering, you know, could you wear your false teeth on the Sabbath or did that constitute carrying a burden, right? Could you spit on the Sabbath day was a question they asked. Because when you spit onto the dirt in those days, it would, of course, separate the dirt. It would go in both directions. So now they said you're furrowing. Right, you're, you're farming and you're, you're plowing. Again, these are the kinds of questions that they dealt with in these 40 chapters on the Sabbath day. There were so many laws that were imposed upon the people that nobody had time to think about God on the Sabbath day because all they could think about were all of these crazy rules that these religious people had come up with and put on them. They were destroying what God had intended the Sabbath to actually be in a person's life, and that was a great blessing. So these religious leaders of the Jews, again, not like so many religious leaders we see today, they were representing a relationship with God that was very, very contrary 
to what God actually intended that relationship to be with him. And they were misrepresenting what God had intended the law to provide to them. Because remember this, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, and make no mistake, the demands that the New Testament makes on us are far greater than the demands that the Old Testament made on them. But whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's our simple obedience to God's simple commands. That's what brings blessing and it actually brings freedom. Because it's our obedience then that introduces us into this life that was intended to be lived, right? All of God's commandments actually set us free. They don't weigh us down. And they're intended to do that. That's why he gave them to us. They were never given to be burdens, but to be blessings. They weren't given to be punishment, but they were given for our protection. And so when we can approach the, the commandments of God, even those from the Old Testament law, and when we can read them in that light, we see that the law provides these beautiful principles to really free us up to live life the way that God intended it to be lived. Especially like you consider a Sabbath, right? When we were supposed to just stop our work in order to reflect and relax. What a great example of that. But it was the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees that ruined Judaism. And it's that same legalism as it creeps into the church that ruins Christianity because the gospel is intended to bring freedom, right? The gospel is intended to bring freedom from our efforts and make us free to simply love the Lord and to obey the Lord and to enjoy the Lord without the worry about all of these legalistic kind of a commandments and traditions. We need to be so, so very, very careful not to add our own ideas or opinions to what God has already communicated and to make it somehow stricter than it actually is. Trust me, God does not need and he does not want that kind of help. He doesn't need it from us. He doesn't need it from anyone. And that kind of help actually doesn't help Christianity at all. It doesn't represent our faith at all. In all of these things, what we need to remember is mercy, grace, joy, freedom. These are the things that the gospel is really about. And I, I'm stuck just, you know, you think about this last beautiful picture here in this chapter. You've got this picture here of these disciples and they're just out there in the grain fields and they're having these conversations with Jesus and they're communing with Jesus. They're basically just enjoying the presence of the Lord and the goodness of God and the goodness of the creation of God. They are completely innocent, but then there are these other guys who just see them as somehow guilty. They must be guilty of violating some command. It's like they're just looking for them to misstep somehow. And that's these two different pictures that we still have even within the church today. Right? There's the one that's always going to give the impression that we are somehow offending God or that we're somehow not pleasing God. And I will say that even pastors are guilty, and I hope that I'm not guilty, though I'm sure that I have been guilty, and God help me. But you know, where you always are sort of leaving people with this impression that somehow they're just falling short of pleasing God. 
that you're, there's somehow or there's something that's there that's caused us. You know, we don't even expect the blessing of God, but somehow we expect the opposite. And that's something that we need to be on guard against because that's the kind of thing that the Pharisees did. They took the goodness of God, they took the blessing of God as it was revealed in the word of God, and they turned it into something that just oppressed and caused people's lives to be miserable. We need to be so careful that we are rightly representing Jesus, right? Who he is, what he's like, that freedom and that joy and that mercy and that grace. Right? And of course, to the, to the degree that we have each personally experienced that grace, we're going to be much more likely then to extend it and to embody it and to share it with others. But if we've fallen into some kind of a religious thing where we've made it all about the rules and improving ourselves and trying hard to somehow please God through some sort of legalistic thing, and if we're missing out on all of the joy of the gospel, then we are misrepresenting who Jesus really is. And we're misrepresenting this wonderful new thing that he did through the gospel. Right? Jesus traded fasting for feasting. He traded sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness. He traded the spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. He traded mourning for joy, and he traded law for grace. And God help us to just receive all that mercy and just receive all of that grace and then to be able to walk in that joy and in that freedom. Because then we're not only going to actually enjoy this relationship with the Lord the way that he intends us to enjoy it, but we are going to much more effectively impact the people around us because there is a supernatural attraction that they will have because of the love that they see. And I'll just say this as we close for the third, third time I'm closing, but... If you're here this morning, if mercy and grace and joy and freedom, if those have not been your overall experience as a Christian, then with as much love as I can say it, something's not right in your experience as a Christian. And, and maybe there are some of us today that just need to yield to that work of God's grace that he's extending and offering to us even now and really just receive that in a personal way for ourselves. If that's you this morning, don't wait one more day. Don't live even one more day under the bondage of the Pharisees. But really say, Lord, I just want to embrace this new thing that you did through the gospel, and I want all of that stuff that comes with it. I want all of those wonderful marks of the gospel, the way they impact a person's life, right? I want to know the mercy and the grace and the joy and the freedom, right? That wonderful freedom that comes to me as I simply put my faith in your word. And you know, you know, the further we each go on with the Lord, and I know the same is true for me, the more we realize, I don't care how much time it was, but any time that we wasted, we realize how much time we wasted just trying to go around under this bondage to try to do better or, or, or be more for the Lord. 
And the more we want to just kind of live in this picture with the disciples, you're right? hanging out there in the field, right? Walking along with Jesus and just talking with him and plucking off some heads of grain, right? And just having this wonderful time experiencing his love. Or we want to just be there because we're just so thankful that we got invited to a party thrown by our good friend Matthew, right? This party that we got invited to that's full of all these other sinners just like us, right? The very worst kinds of sinners just like us. And we're there and we're at this party and we're just there listening to Jesus and we're just letting him love on us. And then we're watching him, right, as his spirit starts to take people's lives, Right? People's lives like Matthew or people's lives like me. And he takes us from tax collector and sinner and he makes us into, you know, apostle and son. And he does that. Right? And he's still doing that. And the gospel does that. One more scripture today. God said this to his people through Isaiah. He said, behold, I will do a new thing. He says, now it shall spring forth. Shall you not I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Shall you not know it, right? Don't miss out on it. Don't, you know, miss recognizing what it is I'm doing here. Because he is doing it and he wants to do it. And he wants to do it in each and every one of our lives here this morning. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the gospel, Lord. We thank you for the mercy and the grace, Lord, and we thank you for the joy and we thank you for the freedom, Lord, that it provides to us amongst so many other things, Lord. We can't even begin, Lord, to explore the ways that the, the gospel impacts each one of our lives. Lord, but we thank you for this passage and we thank you for these things, Lord, and we pray that you would help, Lord, to make these realities true for each of us in our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would Soften our hearts, Lord, so that the seeds of this truth can find good soil, Lord, deep down and can, and can spring up, Lord, to an abundant harvest in each of our lives. So we thank you, Lord. I pray for anyone here this morning, Lord, that, that has missed out on some of these things because they've been struggling under the bondage of, of do more and be better, Lord. I pray that you would free them even now from that. Lord, that even now this morning, as we pray and as we worship, that they would just feel your spirit lifting that burden off of them today, Lord, and that they would be able to start and walk in the newness of this new thing that you want to do in their lives. And so we pray that, we pray that now, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.